So this morning we're starting a new series on the book of Judges. It's the seventh book of the Old Testament about men and women that God raised up to deliver his people. And all of us, every single person in this room, we have an inheritance from God. And what we so often do is by default we walk away from the inheritance that God's got for us. Uh, So over the next few weeks we're going to look at lessons that we can learn about God, the nature of people in general, and who and how God can use us. And, and, and all of these things, it can just be information, or if the Holy Spirit brings it to life, it's revelation and it changes us. So ask God to speak to you. Even as I'm sharing, let the Holy Spirit highlight things. Um, there are 12 judges in the book of Judges, and they all have something in common. And maybe some of us can relate, I know I can, and that is that they are all absolutely broken, but God. We are all broken, but God. Ordinary people, if anything, if you read the book of Judges, these people are tragically dysfunctional. (laughs) They really are. But they make themselves available to an extraordinary God, and God uses them to do extraordinary things. And of the 12 judges, there are minor judges, and there are major judges. And the difference between minor and major is not so much how important they were. It's what was written about them, how much was written, and how much drama existed around their lives at the time. So we are going to look at some of the major judges over the next few weeks. Ophniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. And let me tell you, their stories are very interesting. Very interesting. And these judges weren't like the judge that we have today. I'm not sure if we do it in our country. I don't know if they even do it anywhere anymore, where you have like somebody in a courtroom with, with a white wig on. They weren't like those judges. These judges were military leaders who were raised up by God to deliver his people. And, and we're going to be looking at the Old Testament, and sometimes people think, oh, you know, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament, and the Old Testament, you know, like, unless you really understand it, it's kind of this, this boring ancient book, this ancient document, uh, and, and we'll see as we look through it today and over the next few weeks, the Old Testament, and p- particularly the book of Judges, is full of drama and violence and tragedy and twists and PG-21 content. I actually told Kayla this morning, I said, look, I'm going to ask everyone under the age of 18 to please leave the room, because this morning's message gets a bit gory. Um, and she's like, are you really? So I was like, no, 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 you, you can stay. This is straight from the Word of God. The book of Judges is hectic. It is hectic. Uh, I was saying, if, if, if they made the book of Judges into a movie, we wouldn't be allowed to play it at church, because it's rough. Anyway, so people often view... The God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament as though they separate gods in different distinctions, right? You think the the Old Testament, God was fierce and angry and he lacked in love and he was full of wrath. And then in the New Testament, we discover gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And it's this different view of who God is. The truth is God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is a revelation of the Father with an eternal wrath towards sin yet by very nature love itself. Listen to the scripture that Brent read last week. It's just a picture of who Jesus is. It's awesome. <laughs> Sorry, that comes with my mind. Um, Revelation. If it didn't, I made the sound effect anyway. Revelation 1, 14 and 15. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. 
through Jesus, God separates sin from the sinner, and he pours out his eternal wrath upon sin, and he redeems those that choose to accept him as Lord and Savior. But God's view on sin has never changed. God's Old Testament view of sin hasn't changed, yet the redemptive nature of God has been revealed to us through Jesus and the cross. So yes, his view of sin hasn't changed, but his redemptive heart has been expressed. And as we look at the book of Judges, we'll see this in a phrase you may know. The new is in the old contained, while the old is in the new explained. Right? Or the new is in the old concealed, yet the old is in the new revealed. So the Old Testament kind of gives us a prophetic picture of what we're looking at and how we can apply it to our lives today. God's redemptive uh, nature for humanity has never changed. Whatever you're going through right now, God wants to reach you and redeem you. He wants to do something with your life. His heart for us has never changed. So today, we're going to look at two of the judges, Othniel and Ehud. So if you're going to have another child and you're looking for names, <laughs> hi, this is Othniel. How do, how do you, uh, anyway, I was thinking the more I said the name, the more it doesn't sound very masculine. Othniel and Ehud. Remember, These are ordinary people submitted to an extraordinary God. All of us can be exactly like this where we say, Lord, I give myself to you. And God says, I'm going to raise you up to deliver people. So God can use all of us. Listen to this. The gore will develop as we go. This is is still good. The Israelites, Judges 3, 7 to 11, the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. They forgot about the Lord their God and they served the images of Baal and the Asherah poles. Then the Lord burned with anger against Israel, and he turned them over to King Kashan Rishathim of Aram Naharim. <laughs> don't worry, it only comes up 11 more times. Okay, and the Israelites served that place for eight years. Right? But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Othniel, the son of Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he became Israel's judge. He went to, uh, to war against King, that guy, of Aram. And the Lord gave Athniel victory over him. So there was peace in the land for 40 years. Then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. There is a pattern that we find in the book of Judges that we seem to repeat in our own lives. And it's a tragic thing, because every single judge has the same repetitive pattern. And we see it coming back again and again and again. This is the pattern. The people served God. Then they drifted from God. Then they embraced the gods and the culture of that day. Then they became slaves to that culture and the enemies around them. Then they repented and they cried out to God, please help us, we have made an absolute mess. So God raised up a judge and he rescues his people. So in this case, God raises someone, it's the judges. Then repeat, every single judge comes and tells them the same message. Put God first. You're not putting God first. You're not living like God is first. We sang this morning how much we know we love God. The love language of God is obedience. And what we do is we love God, we serve God, we walk in obedience, but then we drift. And this is what the people of Judges did. And when they drifted, they need rescuing from themselves, essentially. And all of the judges say the same thing. Put God first. I'm telling you the same thing today. Put God first. First. And how many of us mirror this pattern in our own lives? Not only personally, but a society as a whole. Push God away, push God away, push God away, and get to a place where they recognize how desperately they need God back again, and they start crying out for God. 
And we, as the ambassadors of God, can be used to reach those people who are crying out for his presence. And there is no space to throw stones, let me tell you. Um, because often what happens is we, by, uh, in our own nature, we, it's a gradual decline. It's not a knee-jerk reaction. We gradually decline. And we only know how far we've drifted from God once we get there. The Old Testament is a prophetic picture of a physical realm which points to Jesus and gives us insight into the spiritual realm and the very real battles that are taking place right now for your soul and your quality of life. The war is real. It's truth. So let's break down the pattern and how it relates to us. We have this passion. We have this fire for God. I just want to do anything and everything I can to serve Jesus. He's my focus. He's my everything. I will deny everything else all for Jesus, all for his glory. And I remember somebody telling me, Tim, that's the honeymoon phase. It goes away. How tragic is it that for some people that does go away? The passion dies down and then it's just going through the motions until culture creeps in and then eventually God is on the back burner. Not for us. So first of all, they, 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 they served God and they had this passion and then they drifted from God. Think about our lives. Life happens. We have kids. We get a promotion. We, we relocate. We face challenges. We get busy. And this is where people start saying things like this. I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. It's a gradual thing and it's a slippery slope. Then they embrace the gods and the culture of the day. Culture and I've shared this before, maybe more to our leaders, culture is created around what we celebrate and what we tolerate. Culture is created around what we celebrate and what we tolerate. And what the world tolerates and, 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 and celebrates reflects who their God is. What we tolerate and celebrate will be a reflection of who we serve. And we can think, I would never bow down to an idol. I would never be like that, you know. I'm all about Jesus first. But if we don't have a secure identity in Jesus and we live for his will and his ways, then conviction and compromise start getting blurred and we start embracing the culture of the day. And this is not me being angry with anyone. I just know how sneaky culture is. The next step, they became slaves to the enemies and the culture. All of us want to remind us, everyone in the room, everyone you've ever met, Everyone you had a brow with, everyone you're socializing with, everyone you're friends with on Facebook, every one of your social media friends is a slave. The question is, who is the master? The truth is, we are all slaves. Romans six fifteen to 18. So what should we say? Should we sin because we are under grace and not under law? Certainly not. Surely you know that you become the slaves of whatever you give yourself to. What are you giving yourself to? What, are, what am I giving myself to? Anything or anyone you follow will be your master. You can follow sin or you can obey God. Following sin brings spiritual death, but obeying God makes you right with him. In the past, you were slaves to sin. Sin controlled you. But thank God, you fully obey uh, what you were taught. You were made free from sin and now you are slaves to what is right. I'm going to read further on. You still with me? Okay. Romans 6, 20 to 23. You, you decide. You can say Jesus is Lord, but the truth is, who is your master? In the past, you were slaves to sin. You did not even think about doing right. You did evil things. And now you are ashamed of what you did. 
Did those things help you? No, they only brought death. But now you are free from sin. You have become slaves to God, and the result is that you live only for God. This will bring you eternal life. When people sin, they earn what sin pays, death. But God gives his people a free gift, eternal life uh, in Jesus Christ our Lord. Sin is simple. We sin because we want to. We sin because we like to. But the thing about sin is this. You sin now and you pay later. You know, the theme park's open. You pay on your way out. So now, people during the time of Judges, they had allowed culture to seep into their way of life, and they ended up becoming slaves and enemies to that culture. And like I said earlier, this is like a, it's a, a physical picture of a spiritual battle that's going on. So we're not fighting with guns and tanks, and not, not at least in our space, some are. This is a physical illustration exposing a spiritual principle. There is a war over you. And you're either a slave to Jesus or you're a slave to the enemy. The enemy looks for ways to infiltrate our, wild, uh, our lives, subtle and sneaky. And we all feel like we have things under control until we don't. How many of us think, I got this under control until we don't? Sin, unforgiveness, bitterness, compromise, disobedience, infiltrate our lives. Strong today, slave tomorrow. Strong today, slave tomorrow. And the, the lie the enemy uses, he comes into our life and, and, and he, he sneaks in and we lose our freedom. In reality, we move from being free to sin. We think to ourselves, oh, my master says I'm free to sin. To being free from sin. We all have a master to serve. We are all a slave somewhere. Right? And these people allowed the culture of the day to creep in and they became a slave to that culture. The same attack is on us today. The next thing they did was they repented and they cried out to God. Lord, I'm, I'm, I've messed up. I'm sorry. I did it again. I'm, I've become a slave to this thing. I'm sorry. And I cry out to God. I'm coming back to church. I'm recommitting my life. You know, I'm sorry for doing those things. And we cry out to God. This is a yearning and a yielding that every heart should be in. Every one of us should be in that place where we say, Lord, I'm crying out to you. I want your presence. I surrender to your will and your ways. And what happens? What's God's response to a yielded heart? God rescued them. In their case, through the judges. In our case, through Jesus Christ, who forgives. He shows us mercy and grace and love. And we start to get our lives back on track. Things start coming right. It's a tragic list. How many people love God, serve God, seek God, yield to God, obey God, and then their life starts getting better, and then they start getting busy, and then all of a sudden God is a little less interesting or captivating than he used to be, and all of a sudden I'm going to church but once every few months, and then eventually I'm not really going anymore, and then we find out that we're slaves to the very thing that we thought we had mastered. Right? Are, are, are you all Okay. So, uh, 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 thank you. I appreciate that. One million city hill points for you. Um, <laughs> we're doing a course in our life group at the moment. Make it a billion. Um, we're doing a course in our life group at the moment on the wilderness. All of us in our lives will go through wilderness seasons where we feel far away from God. And there's a reason God allows us to go into those seasons. There's a purpose for those seasons. But one of the things that really stood out to me through this lesson is this. 
God has a duration in mind for how long we are in the wilderness because he has a purpose for it. But sometimes through our own way of life and disobedience and whatever it is, we extend that time in the wilderness. We walk around the mountain again and again and again and again, and God is saying, it's time to stop doing that. I've got a promised land for you, but you're keeping yourself a slave. And if you cry out to me and if you put me first, not just when things are tough, but always, then you will walk into the promises of God. Peter, you're a blessing. Now we're going to get to the gory bits. The second guy that we're going to look at is Ehud. Uh, we are going to ramp up the violence score and gross department quite significantly. I just want you to know, I didn't write this. <laughs> I'm just the messenger. Judges 3, 12 to 30. Ehud becomes Israel's judge. Once again, the Israelites, again, they've been delivered. They cry, Lord, please help us. God sends ethne, uh, Othniel. And then they're like, oh, thank you, Lord. And they, and they find peace, and they find their place in God again. But what happens? Life gets comfortable, and then they drift back. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the, in the Lord's sight. The Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. We end up becoming slaves to our own evil. Eglon enlisted the Ammonites and Amalekites as allies, and he went out and defeated Israel, taking possession of Jericho, a city of palms. And the Israelites served Eglon of Moab for 18 years. Slaves again, again, again. But when the people of Israel again cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Ehud of Gera, a left-handed man with, uh, of the tribe of Benjamin. The Israelites sent Ehud to deliver the, uh, their tribute money to King Eglon of Moab. So now they're slaves and they've got to pay their master. So Ehud made a double-edged dagger that was about a foot long, and he strapped it to his right thigh, keeping it hidden under his clothing. He brought the tribute money to Eglon, who was very fat. After delivering the payment, Ehud started home with those he had helped carry the tribute. But when Ehud reached the stone idols of Gilgal, he turned back. He came to Eglon and said, I have a secret message for you. So he's come to the king. I've got a secret for you. So the king commanded his servants, be quiet. And he sent all of them out of the room. Ehud walked over to Eglon, who was sitting alone in a cool upstairs room. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. As King Eglon rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, pulled out the dagger strapped to his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. The dagger went so deep that the handle disappeared between, beneath the king's fat. It's bigger. The dagger went so deep that the handle disappeared beneath the king's fat. So Ehab did not pull out the dagger, and the king's bowels emptied. Told you, Kayla. <laughs> then Ehab closed the locked door of the room and escaped down the latrine. I mean, <laughs> after Ehab was gone, the king's servants uh, returned and found the door to the upstairs room locked. They thought he might be using the latrine in the room. So it's like, the king must be on the toilet. So they waited. But when the king didn't come out, after a long delay, they became concerned and got a key. And when they opened the door, they found their master dead on the floor. While the servants were waiting, he had escaped, passing the stone, stone idols on his way to Sarah. When he arrived in the hill country of Ephraim, he had sounded a call to arms. And for us, a call to arms. 
Then he led a band of Israelites down from the hill. Follow me, he said, for the, the, not me, for the Lord has given you victory over Moab, your enemy. They followed him. And the Israelites took control of the shadow crossings of the Jordan River across the Moab, preventing anyone from crossing. They attacked the Moabites and killed about 10,000 of their strongest, most able-bodied warriors. Not one of them escaped. So, so Moab was conquered by Israel that day, and there was peace in the land for 80 years. It's quite graphic. The guy couldn't take the sword back out because it was a big deal. So when the New Testament... So, so with the new in the old container and the old in the new explained, what does this mean for us today? The Moabites symbolized flesh and sin. Right? They, they, they symbolized everything God opposed. And what they had done was they allowed what God had opposed to become something that they became a bit more comfortable with. And therefore, God, they, they ended up becoming slaves to it. And God raised up a left-handed man and he delivered them and they had peace for 80 years. So what makes these men and women, and we'll get to the women heroes later on, but what makes them heroes? Could God use us in the same way? Ultimately, the answer is this, that these people stood up for God and opposed anything that God opposed. And it's not so much what we oppose that counts, it's who we stand for that counts. Otherwise, Christians are very good at shouting everything wrong with the world instead of shouting how wonderful Jesus is. Right? So these people are people that stood up for Jesus or stood up for God. In our lives, the same thing would be to us for us to deal ruthlessly for anything that separates us from God. Deal ruthlessly with it because God opposes it. Instead of expla- expanding the gray area in our lives, we should be trying to eliminate it. So what can we learn from Ehud the judge and from this particular scripture? Number one, God hears our cries. I know, church, because I live in the world, it's gone mental. It's gone crazy evil. And the levels of evil, and, and, and right now, I think a lot of Christians are crying out to God. And God's saying, I have called you to be my ambassadors. Go and tell people the gospel, the good news in the world. So we can protest, and we can picket, and we can tear down, and we can frustrate, and we can voice our opinions on social media. Please don't do that. But you can, or you can stand up for Jesus. But he hears your cries. He sees what's going on in the world. It says this, but when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord their God for help, the Lord again rose up a rescuer to save them. How often do we go from culture to conformity to compromise to crying? Culture, conformity, compromise, crying. And there's two cryings here. There's crying because of the consequences of sin. This is remorse. And there's crying because of conviction. This is repentance. We need to be crying out as a people of God. Lord, we're crying out to you. Rescue your people. Either way, Jesus wants to see us restored. And he hears our cries. From the beginning, think about this. If you read scripture, he sent leaders, judges, kings, prophets, his son, his spirit. God's heart to redeem is evident. God longs to rescue us. All we need to do, all you need to do, cry out to God. Like that cry out. And the sin that separates us and makes us slaves isn't overcome by us trying harder. It's, it's overcome by us crying harder, so to speak. 
saying, Lord, when we, when we cry out, then God gives us the grace. So the crying gets infused with his presence for the trying. Otherwise, we try and fail and try and fail and try and fail. And we go through the same cycle that these people did. Messed up, become uh, enemies to the world, and then um, we end up blurring the lines of compromise. I remember in Bible college, somebody asked the question, young people, how far is too far? The question was about six. <laughs> how far is too far? The response to the question was this. The right question isn't how far is too far. It's how far from the line can I keep? Not how close can I get to it? Let us not build our camp on the border of the mobile camp. The way of the world is getting darker. And the more we just live in the gray area right next door to it, the less our light shines. And eventually, guess what? We become slaves to the very enemy that we're trying to redeem. Do not build your life close to the... Don't flirt with sin and temptation. Before we know it, we become its slaves. God hears our cries. Why left-handed? The next, next point. Why left-handed? Why does the Bible say that he was a... Le- Why not just say, that guy killed that guy? Judges 3.15b... His name was Ehud of Gera, left-handed man of the tribe of Benjamin. Why? Are there any left-handed people in the room? Oh, wow, quite a lot. <laughs> oh, guys, remember, remember what Chris said in the beginning. We're not offended people here. So when I, uh, I'm going to, Judges 3, verse 21, Ehud reached with his left hand, pulled out a dagger, strapped to his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Why does the Bible even mention he was left-handed? By the way, just so that you know, when I was little, I, was right, I wrote with my left hand, and then they gave me one of those triangles on my pencil and made me write with my right hand. <laughs> so my writing is truly terrible, but I, I was probably more left-handed when I was a kid. Um, the reason is because in those days, it was considered a disability to be left-handed. Left-handed people were, everyone was trained to fight. Have you ever tried to throw a ball with your weak arm? <laughs> You're like, eh. So what happens is they put the sword in your right hand, but he's left-handed. So he just looks weak with the sword. Yeah. So what happens is you change hands. They're like, no, 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 that's not the way it's done. You've got to switch it around. You've got to do it the right way. But then he looks weak, right? So the point is this, that he, he tried to do something. And in those days, they would be trained a certain way. They would lock shields a certain way. They would work a certain way. And now all of a sudden, this left-handed guy comes along and he's not doing it their way. So they let him work with his left hand. The point is this. All of us think that we have some setback, disadvantage, disability that disqualifies us. And God's saying, I'm going to use the very thing you think is a setback to set you up for victory. Right? His left-handedness was a disability, but it also helped him to sneak his sword in because things were done the other way and they weren't paying attention the way they would normally pay attention. So now the left-handed people all have an advantage. If David was 10 foot tall and Goliath was 9 foot tall, I don't think we'd be telling the story the same way. It wouldn't be like, oh, wow, we'd be like, because David was bigger. Of course he won. But the fact that David was a little guy and Goliath was nine foot tall made it absolutely outstanding. Why? Because the disadvantage was massive. And you might think, Lord, I've got a big disadvantage. And God says, I'm going to use your disadvantage for my glory. All you have to do is cry out to me. So what is your disadvantage? Our our age, our education, our fears, our insecurities, our past, our history, our fear of man, as Kayla said this morning. What will people think of me? The bigger our disability, the bigger God's glory. 
Remember, what takes you from ordinary to extraordinary is not what we are capable of. It's us putting our faith in Jesus and saying, Lord, here I am, use me. And God says, I'm going to raise up a group of people who are going to deliver the people in darkness so that they can find me and they can be restored and redeemed. So recap, what we would use as an excuse, God will use to set us up for his glory. And the last one is this, and, it's, and I'm closing. Who here knew about Othniel and Ehad before we discussed them today? Couple. God will use whoever is willing. And the world might not know our name. God sees it. God knows it. God remembers it. God records it. And if we are being used by God for his glory, our name's not important. His is. Othniel and Ehad. I mean, one of them brought peace for 80 years, an entire generation. And and that means our whole life was just written in a sentence. And you might think, oh, well, you know, my name, my name, my reputation, my fame. If we give ourselves to God, then he will use us for his glory. And if people use you to remember the name of Jesus, your life has been well lived. The enemy would love to see us as prisoners to sin, fear, failure, insecurity, excuses. But when we cry out to God, he lifts us up, he redeems us, he restores us. And God loves to use the underdog. I know that there are a lot of underdogs in the room. And God loves the underdogs. So, I'm going to pray for us this morning. People might not remember your name, but that they will remember the name of Jesus. That you will not build your life around the enemy territory. That we won't become these people who are picketing and and, and shouting our mouth off at sin, but we'll rather be people that stand up for Jesus Christ. Maybe you are in that cycle. I come to church, I give my life to God, I sort my life out, things kind of balance out a bit, I find more security, more stability, whatever, and then all of a sudden God's just, and then you're going through exactly the same cycle they went through. Maybe you're in that space. Do you need to cry out to God and invite him back into your life? Are you willing to make a stand and say, I'm standing up for Jesus? Because I believe we can be used by God to deliver his people. And that's not because we're the deliverer, it's because we point people to the, the one who delivered us. This church is not just a group of people who gather on a Sunday to watch a sermon. You are soldiers in the Lord's army with an allegiance to the world. We go with our swords, with the word of God. We go with our armor on. We go with a sense of victory. The war has been won. All we have to do now is go and collect the plunder. And yes, we may face personal battles, but God will bring victory. All we need to do is cry out to him. Don't set up camp close to the Moabites. Let's pray. Lord, I pray. Actually, will you stand, please? I pray, Lord Jesus, that every one of these people in this room, everyone, Lord, will be used significantly by you. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that every single person in this room will push back enemy territory. 
I pray, Lord Jesus, that we won't get stuck in a cycle of just sin, repent, repeat, sin, repent, repeat. I pray, Lord Jesus, that all of us will be in a place where we put on our armor, we wake up daily, we serve you daily, we give our lives to you. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that we stay connected to to church. We stay connected to praying together. We stay connected to meeting in each other's homes because this is how we stay strong. Lord, I pray that you will raise up through this church a generation of spiritual warriors who will defeat the enemy. Move in power through these people, I pray, Lord Jesus. And I thank you that every heart will say, Lord, here I am, send me. And if there are people in the room who are feeling absolutely guilty because they have been stuck in that sin cycle and they are struggling and they're crying out to you, I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you say you are forgiven. In repentance, we find new life. I thank you that everyone in this room will be restored. Raise up David's in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.